Well, Saints of Grace Bible Church, it is always a joy to be with you. I've known some of you for 15 plus years, I've seen some of you grow up, been friends with Jacob and raised our children together. So it is a unique joy to come and see your numbers growing and your roots going deep. And what a blessing that is, right? County needs a strong witness to the sovereignty of God and the, the gospel and the glory of Christ. And here you are. And so we rejoice with you and for you. And we praise God for his grace over you. When Jacob asked me to come and preach, um, so you have to understand our relationship. We're like brothers. And so I said, what's my text? And he gave me three. I thought, oh, that's funny. And he said, no, we're doing a series on suffering, you know. And so I began working through it and labored through three different texts and trying to make sure it's succinct and clear and obviously biblical. And last night it dawned on me that he meant you can choose one of these texts. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to punch you when I see you. So we're going to do... A, an exegetical overview of three texts, each of which point to the sovereignty of God in suffering. And I think each has something unique for us to see, uh, but we are on an economy of time. And so I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can, which if you know me quickly is not my strong suit, but I will get you out of here by lunch. So let's pray. And we're going to jump into First Peter chapter 1 will be where we go first. So as I pray, you can turn to First Peter chapter 1. The title of this message, uh, which is, I think, the beginning of this series for Grace Bible Church, is God's Purpose in Human Suffering. God's Purpose in Human Suffering. So let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you that indeed you are Lord of all. God, it is healing a wound lightly to think that you are not sovereign over everything, including pain and suffering. It is not comfort to think that there is sovereign evil. It is not comfort to think that there is purposeless suffering. God, our desire this morning is not to get you off the hook as if you ever asked to be. You bring life and you bring death. You bring blessing, you bring calamity. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And by your grace we say, blessed be your name. And yet, Lord, I don't have to be a prophet to know that the saints in this room are living the paradoxical reality that Paul points to in 2 Corinthians 6. They are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. They come in rejoicing over their salvation, but they also groan because of bodies that are yet to be glorified and children that are yet to be saved and jobs that are yet to be found and a million other sufferings and heartaches, Lord. So would you please come, give us a high view of who you are and how you work with and through pain for our greatest joy, which is to be conformed into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. The problem of evil is not new. And why I say problem of evil, what I mean is men have wrestled for centuries with how do we reconcile existential evil 
with the reality of a good and loving God. Maybe you've encountered that in your personal evangelism. Our brother in the exhortation this morning talking about evangelism, very appropriate as we consider the suffering that we experience and the reality of God because if you've been sharing the gospel for any length of time with coworkers, friends, family, maybe your own head, and things like when I was in college, 9-11 comes, or if you back up just a few more decades, you have wars and you have holocausts and you have a million different heartaches and pains, and yet we come along as Christians and say, God is good, God is loving, God is compassionate, and people say, wait, how can that be? This is nothing new. If you go back to the year 341 B.C., you find a name called Epicurus. And you think, why do I need to know about a Greek philosopher? Well, it's interesting that the Epicureans appear in Acts chapter 17. Paul was preaching the gospel at the Areopagus to the Stoics and the Epicureans. Well, they found their genesis in the thinking of Epicurus. Why do I bring up Epicurus. Well, listen to what he said in 341 BC just to see that the idea of reconciling a good sovereign God with the reality of suffering is not new. Epicurus says this, and I'll I'll read it slowly. He asked this question, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing to annihilate evil? Then why is there evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So how are Christians to think about the problem of evil and personal suffering? We will not untangle every knot in terms of how God's sovereignty interacts with the reality of evil in the world. But I think what we'll find in three texts of Scripture is great consolation for the Christian soul. We disavow open theism. That's a way to get God off the hook. Open theism would say, God doesn't know what's coming. Man is so sovereign and so autonomous, God has limited his understanding And he's reacting as things come. So if anything bad comes, you know, God's kind of off the hook because he's learning as much as we are. And you think that's silly, but open theism is having a resurgence in our day. Or, you wonder why suicide and depression and anxiety and everything else is rampant in our world, why so many people are falling apart It's because we have reached a point in post-Christian, post-secular, neo-pagan America. That's where we are. People, by and large, you don't find rank atheist anymore. They say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. That's pagan. We're one step away from barbarism. And what comes with a pagan mentality and a pagan worldview is nihilism. So they look out the world and they say, there's no meaning. There's nothing. I have to find the God within. And many of them realize when pain and suffering comes that 
if indeed this pain has no purpose and no meaning because nothing means anything, then what's the point? But the word of God gives a better answer. To the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, we don't have to become open theist, become a PR campaign for God and say, well, he didn't know. Don't blame him. And we don't have to be nihilist and say, well, nothing means anything. The Bible has answers for these things about how we are to think about the interplay between God's goodness and sovereignty and the reality of pain and suffering. The Word of God says that He is sovereign over all things. He is not the author of sin, but He uses sin and suffering in the lives of His children for His good purposes. The Bible is replete with that message. Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil, God, careful how you answer, God used for good, that's not what it says. What you meant for evil, intent, God meant for good. God intended it. There's causation in it. God's not responding to these things. He's working concurrently in and through them in a way that I can't explain. One pastor said very succinctly that nothing is wasted in God's economy. You know, when I try to put things together, I always have spare parts left over. My poor father-in-law has tried to teach me carpentry for years, and He's a paragon of patience, but I, I just, it, my brain doesn't work that way. I always have leftover parts, but God doesn't have leftover parts. We're dealing with omniscience and omnipotence here. So here's my main point. If I could get this into one sentence, so I stay on time. God superintends the suffering of his children to conform them into the image of his son. God superintends the suffering of his children to conform them into the image of his son. He teaches us in our pain. The first thing he teaches us that we see in 1 Peter 1 is courage to persevere. So if you like to take notes, I know some of you are note takers. Some say amen, some just write harder. I get it. We're in the Midwest. So if you want to take a note, number one, courage to persevere, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. So let's read the text quickly together. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, verse 7 is critical. first two words of verse 7 is a causal phrase. So that, it tells you why. Why does that matter? How many times do you go to another believer or to a pastor or to the mirror and say, why? What's the point? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory 
and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's so much that I want to say about this text, and I'm probably going to scrap most of my notes. But what we see here is causation in our suffering. First Peter, if you look back up to the very opening verse, he's writing to a group of believers that he refers to as elect exiles. And these are not just people that are being martyred under Nero. I've read enough commentaries. I don't think that it is, that is all he's writing to. Many of the saints that are dispersed abroad, some of them are being martyred at the edge of a sword. Some of them just live in highly pagan societies where they're not shedding their blood. They're just alienated. They're losing jobs. They're losing friends. And everything in between. And so he says, I'm writing to those who feel like elect exiles. I know that God has done something in my life, but I live my life in this world and it doesn't feel like home for a million different reasons. Now we can relate to them. Because I guarantee many of you as God's people feel like an elect exile in this world. And he writes to them and he says, down in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And when it says various trials, it's kind of a very generic word that Peter uses. It could mean anything. You've been grieved by various trials. But it says in verse 6 that in this you rejoice. It's weird. Why do we rejoice in trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise and glory at the honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter getting at? He's giving us the cause, what God is doing. In this you rejoice, I rejoice in my pain, in my various trials, in my exilic reality. Why? I think this text, I think this text is a close parallel to Romans 5. Very, very close parallel. So I'm just going to take all that is here, which is worth about five sermons, and just lay out, let's just work through the text backwards. You rejoice in your suffering. Why do you do that? Well, it's not of our own accord. It says in verse 5, as we work back up, who by God's power being guarded through faith. Beloved, let me ask you. As you live as an elect exile in this world and face various trials... And let's just let's put a name on it. Let's not speak in generic terms. Yes, they are many, but let's give them a name. Let's give it a name that all of us hate. Cancer. Thinking of saints back at my home church of Redeemer, MS, Parkinson's. Financial strain. Lost children, lost loved ones. Let's not kid around that we're moving into a post-secular, post-Christian America 
Persecution is at your doorstep. Some of you are feeling it. Some of you are walking into the HR department for the next round of training on inclusion, and your conscience is going haywire because you're thinking, I got a mortgage to pay, but I don't buy any of this garbage. What am I going to do? I can't retire for 20 years, God. Where is this going? I can't, I can't just check out and live in a mountain somewhere. i got to take care of my family. If you don't take care of your household, you're worse than an unbeliever. But I don't fit. Does that sound about right? And the devil comes in those times. He can smell blood in the water. To increase your agony. And what does he whisper to me? What does he often whisper to you? Just compromise a little. Just give a little incense to Caesar and they'll leave you alone. Just pull away from the fellowship of saints for a little bit. Just have some me time. But it says you're being guarded. It's almost as if Jesus prayed and says, Peter, when you turn... Go and strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you, Peter. Satan desired to have you, but I prayed for you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, it presents you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It says he is keeping you, so you come through the trial, and you've, it's a fiery trial. You smell like smoke. You almost lost it, but you come out on the other side. What? This is why the prosperity gospel is such garbage. You know what blows me away the more I walk with Christ? It's not financial blessing. It's not even numeric growth. It's not ministry. It's not any of that. You know the thing that blows me away? People go out to Redding, California looking for angel dust from the ceiling and miracles abounding from modern day apostles, which they are not. People spend thousands for miracles. You know what's a miracle the longer you walk with Christ? Is you wake up in the morning in the midst of all these various trials and you look in the mirror, and your you're smoke, your hair's on fire. It's the various trials. But you look in the mirror, and you say, I still believe. I still trust Christ. And it ain't me. Well, God, if it was up to my free will, I would have sent myself to hell years ago. And what does he say? He says, I'm doing this so that... The tested genuineness of your faith. And then there's that hyphen. He's like, pay attention. More precious than gold. Do you realize? And some of you do. I know experientially. You're like, I've experienced a lot of blessing from the Lord. But the thing that blesses me is when I know, I know I would have apostatized. I know I would have fell. I know I would have slipped away. I know I would have backslid through all of this. And my problems are still there. But I know he is real. I know what it says up here that he is a resurrected Savior and I have a living hope because if there wasn't a living Savior in heaven praying for me and keeping me, I would not be here. And I sure as heck wouldn't be in church. I'd be hung over till noon. I pray for you, beloved. Your faith may not fail. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. When you come through like that, 
Suffering proves the reality of your faith, and the reality of your faith assures you of everything in verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. I know he caused me to be born again, and I know he's keeping me, because if it was left up to me, I wouldn't be persevering through all of this, not to the glory of God and not by faith in Jesus. So the first point, and there's so much more to be said, but the first point is that God superintends our suffering to conform us into the image of his son, and through suffering he teaches us courage to persevere. If you go through that, that you look back, these fiery trials, various trials, and you say, he kept me. And you look ahead and it says, you, in First Peter, you've been given an inheritance that is kept in heaven, imperishable. He began a good work in you and he will complete it. This is where you're going. Past grace and future grace give you present grace. Why will you wake up and persevere tomorrow, Monday morning? Because he saved you. And he promises to save you in the morning. And he promises to bring you back in this building in a week, loving Jesus, because you have a living hope. And that gives you courage to persevere. Number two, suffering teaches us compassion for others. Compassion for others. God superintends our suffering to teach us compassion for others. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. And there's that causal phrase again, so that, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. I mean, what is going on in Paul's life? Well, look down at verse 8. We don't know exactly, but what we do know is that in Paul's experience, in his missionary journeys, he thought he was going to die. And there probably, because Paul, yes, is an apostle, but a finite, yet-to-be-glorified sinner... I imagine there were times in Paul's inner dialogue as he's coming near to death. (laughs) He might be thinking, Lord, I don't understand. I've got work to do. The gospel needs to go out. Why am I on the brink of death right now? But he tells us, so that, you don't know it at the time. John Flavel, the old Puritan, he says, providence is like a Hebrew word. You read it backwards. This is after God has saved him and redeemed him and brought him to the brink of death. And Paul looks back and he goes, this is why. Some of you are living in the grip of providence right now and you have no idea why things are happening to you. But it will make sense in a year. Paul says, so that I can comfort you. Some Christians are naturally sympathetic, others not so much. We must be trained in God's school of suffering. 
Paul Tripp says this, if you are God's child, you have been liberated from the self-centered burden of living for yourself, and you've been freed to live for him. And that means you've been called to be part of what God is doing in the lives of those around you and around the world. God causes us to long for and experience his comfort so that we would be ready as agents of his comfort in the lives of others. Hear this. I love this sentence. This means that our suffering has ministry in view. Our suffering, God works through it to teach us compassion for other people. Go back to verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we do. Beloved, are you in God's school of suffering right now? You don't have to answer me. Your eyes tell me you are. You'd be embarrassed maybe if I heard your prayers last night or the night before because they felt so weak. The theology you know in your head just was not connecting with your heart. You're saying, God, I don't understand why. This seems like purposeless suffering. I can't see why this would be. I feel like I'm at the point of death, Paul says in verse 8. Could it be that he's teaching you compassion? Could it be, I remember a time as I read this text, my mind was transported back. I've struggled with anxiety my whole life, depression in my 20s and on in now in my 40s. And there was a point in ministry, some of it because of my own immaturity and my own sin and foolishness, but some of it circumstantial, but all I knew is I was folding laundry in the basement, kids were upstairs, oblivious, playing, being kids. And I just started crying, which I don't cry much. Now, it's not because I'm tough. And I just got on my knees, and I wish I could say I had this eloquent prayer. You know, no, it wasn't. It was, very, it was very raw. And I said, God, I don't. I can't shake it. How can I be the pastor you want me to be when I can't shake the anxiety and the depression? Pick one. Either let me be wired or down, but not both. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil? It's both. And I said, God, please, I don't see how this is helpful. That was my literal prayer. I said, I've got a church of over 200 people at the time, and I don't see how this is helpful for them. What are you doing? Fast forward. Sitting down with innumerable, but I can think of a few, saints that I know love the Lord. I've seen grace in their lives. I've heard their profession of faith. I've seen them persevere through hardship to the glory of God, sitting in my office, weeping, saying, I feel so abandoned and I don't know what God's doing. This depression will not lift. What's the point? What do you say? I go to 2 Corinthians 1. Beloved, I'm not going to minimize your pain, but I have quoted this text time and time again where I looked him in the eye and I said, look, I don't know. 
the exact reason, but here's what I do know. I've received comfort from the God of all comfort. I'm still sitting here believing in Jesus, not totally healed, but happy. And I know now that you're part of the reason why the Lord brought me through this, because otherwise I would sit here and give you spiritual platitudes, give you another book to read that you ain't going to read, pray for you, give you a benediction, and send you off. But I'm here now with something I did not have before all this, which is genuine compassion for you to say, I'll just, just weep together. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but I know he'll be there when you get up. Careful how you pray. Lord, make me like Jesus. Really? You self-made, proud, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get her done Americans want to pray, make me like Jesus? Teach me compassion, O oh God. Okay. You might find yourself with a thorn that he won't take out. But in its place, he will give you grace. Your suffering has ministry in mind, beloved. It's not wasted. The Lord teaches you compassion for others. And finally, number three, Philippians 3.8. Philippians 3.8. The third text I was assigned. I'm sure he meant to give me 45, but... God superintends our suffering to teach us courage to persevere, compassion for others, and comfort in loss. Comfort in loss. And it might not be the kind of loss you're thinking. Look at Philippians 3.8. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Beloved, it is one thing is a, a unique kind of loss to lose a loved one. It's another kind of loss to lose your sense of control and identity. Here's what I mean. If we look back at verses 3 through 7, what, what is Paul counting as loss? His ethnicity, his education, his vocation, his religious self-achievement. He says, I count all of these things as lost. That's a massive statement. Because every one of the things that Paul lists, his job, his education, his religious achievements, his family, all of these things can become functional saviors. All of these things can become false forms of righteousness. I feel right with God because I'm a good hard worker. I feel right with God because I obey the law. I feel right with God because I parent the right way. It is so easy to find a functional Savior outside of the righteousness with Christ. It is not easy to sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. No, because there are a million things vying for functional saviors in our lives and that's why that statement to me is so critical because Paul did it he did it I want to know how he did it 
Because one of the reasons I struggle with anxiety and depression is because it, it touches the core of the thing that I want to make my identity other than Jesus. Strong, self-assured, clear-headed. That's Aaron White. No, Aaron White is a wretched, hell-deserving, God-defaming sinner that he's saved by his grace. And if he never blessed me another day in my life, he's still worthy of praise. But Paul was able to say, I count all of this as loss. And I look at that and an old book came to mind. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. It's antiquated language, it's hard to read, but the concept is critical. He says, our hearts do not give up their beloved idols easily. You can't take away something and say, don't do that, don't do that, don't rely on that, don't do that, take it away, and then leave the heart in a, in a state of kind of this vacuous middle because our hearts crave. He says, in order to take away a lesser uh, attraction or a lesser desire, you have to give it a more superior desire, and that's exactly what we see happening. Paul says, education is fine, ethnicity is fine, like these things are not, they're amoral, until they become supreme. And I was relying, Paul says, I was relying on all these things, but I have counted them as lost because I found something better. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth. There it is. What's going to help me let go of my identity? What's going to help me survive when I retire and I'm no longer that guy? What's going to help me survive with joy when I flip my car and I break my back and I can't work and people have to care for me and my identity as the hardworking head of the household is gone? What's going to help me get up in the morning with joy and faith? It's going to be something where I can say I have counted it, all of these functional saviors, as loss for the sake Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing is an intimate term. Not just knowing stuff about him, but walking with him in intimate fellowship. Being found in him by faith. It says, that will satisfy me. My dad was a cop for 40 years at the same department. And if you know statistics, cops don't do well in retirement. A lot of them die early. Because of stress, poor diet, late nights, all kinds of things. My dad is thriving. Why? It's because Christ saved him. I had no idea how my dad was going to survive retirement until God reached down and saved him 13 years ago as an overnight sergeant, called me on duty and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm going back to church. Amen. And he hung up his uniform, that functional savior that I was worried would be his undoing. He let it go because I found something better. I know Christ. I know who I am. I know my sins are gone. Perhaps you are losing things that are precious to you. It might not be a physical loss, but it might be the loss of functional saviors. It might be the loss of a job. It might be the loss of your pride that comes with the losing of the job. 
It might be with the relationships. Some of you young people, relationships, if they're done to the glory of God, are a good thing. But, oh, they can become a functional savior. If I don't have the girl, if I don't have the guy, then, then what? You have no more hope in God, no more hope of heaven? I'll borrow this from Ted Tripp. If I can't have fill in the blank, then I will have no hope in God. Or if I lose blank, then I can have no hope in God. Whatever that is, if it's not Jesus, is an idol. And idols lead to death. And it would be the mercy of a good and loving God to come and take that away that he might be your joy and your satisfaction. Some of you are hanging on to something that your father is pulling away from you and you don't understand. He's not just wanting you to live in a vacuous state of neutrality. Just don't sin. He says, no, I'm giving you my son. I'm giving you Christ. I'm giving you a million times more. Yes, in the life to come. But when you get up in the morning, you can face the world and say, I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. But here's what I do know. There is therefore now no condemnation for me who is in Christ. We'll figure this out. That's what makes you peculiar people. It is glorifying the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. God superintends the suffering of his children to conform them into the image of his son. I close with this. Charles Spurgeon died in 1892. After serving as the pastor of the first megachurch, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. His sermons are still read. His sermons were, were printed and distributed on both sides of the Civil War. Over here. He's in London. Spurgeon, I mean, just type Spurgeon on Google. I mean, his sermons and his devotionals, I mean, from the grave, he's been preaching the gospel loudly. His name is synonymous with gospel proclamation. I'm going down to Midwestern Seminary tomorrow, and what do they have there? The Spurgeon Library. His desk is there, and his sermon manuscripts are there. And yes, I'm going to go and geek out over it. But what we often don't hear about is the fact that all throughout his life and ministry, that man suffered greatly. He said, though, this is what he said about himself, because my worst trait is my uncaused depression. He had gout. He had Bright's disease, inflammation of the kidneys. He had depression and anxiety. He had a panic attack one time trying to cross a street in London, and he seized up and he had to go home. He smoked cigars. But what most people don't realize is that he did that primarily for the anti-anxiolytic effect that it gave him. Spurgeon was a wounded man. And yet he wrote these words. The worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty. But the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes God to be too wise to err. And too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. My friend, if you are here apart from Christ and you are suffering, there is only more suffering in the life to come.
Your sin is an affront to a holy God, and the wages of sin is death. But C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. Perhaps your pain and suffering is meant to be smelling salts, to tell you what you already know is true. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through him. But in Christ, by faith in him, we can say with Paul, and you could say it this morning, if you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, we can say, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. By faith in Christ, we can sing these words and actually mean them. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God Almighty superintends the suffering of his children to conform them into the image of his son. Nothing is wasted in God's economy, beloved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray for every hurting heart and aching back in this room. God, would you strengthen your people? God, would you remind them that you do indeed work all things for good? Even as we weep and as we pray and as we bang our head against the wall and say, why? Just like psalm after psalm. It is proper to weep over pain. But Lord, I thank you that as Spurgeon said, your sovereignty is the pillow upon which we lay our head. Would you bless them and strengthen them, help them to persevere and to have compassion with their fellow exiles. And oh God, to let go of every functional savior. Count it all as loss. What can flesh do to us? If God be for us, who can be against us? And it's all because of Jesus. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.